the best thing that institutions and organizations can do is to help reframe some of these issues so that people will listen to others. Like if, you, if we change that norm where there's more empathy and there's more opportunity to actually listen to other people, I think it will be done more. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast. I'm your host, John Ford. And if you've been thinking to yourself, I really wish someone could share Framework's experience and guidance on how to help coalitions be successful. Well, guess what? You, my friends, are in exactly the right place. Or maybe you're in the right place because this is part two of our conversation with Sarah Brenner, president of Community Wealth Partners. If you haven't listened yet to part one, then stop this episode now. Really, we'll wait right here in part two, right where you stopped, okay? If you have listened to part one, then you are definitely in the right place to roll into part two. We're picking up right where we left off with Sarah talking about work that's going on in Arizona. If you recall, we were discussing the Arizona Early Childhood Alliance. In this part, we'll stay in the family and community space with a brief discussion about communities and schools, and then spend much of this episode talking about the 10 key elements that we all need to understand and work with in order to produce the changes we're after. So let's get to it. It's time to get to know more about Community Wealth Partners' work and, of course, learn more about what propels coalitions to make the big changes we all want to see in the world. So while we're talking about Arizona, we've also got this bingo card on your website of your clients, and one of them is communities and schools. Yeah. Communities and schools is a big big thing that we're trying to grow here in Arizona. A lot of people are very interested in that. So can you talk a little bit about your experience there and what you can offer as advice to Arizona on that? Sure. So our work is interesting. Our work with communities and schools, first of all, was really helping them think about how they supported communities, each community differently. So they're a very large network, um, which you may know, working across the country. And a lot, big part of what they were trying to figure out is how they could meet each community where they were in terms of building out the types of supports in schools that were necessary. So if their model is to make sure you're getting the type of social and emotional supports for kids that is going to accelerate their academics, we were really helping them think very much about what is needed in each one of those markets and what do they provide in addition to others to support those schools in those markets, if that makes sense. And that's been critical. I mean, they obviously work well beyond third grade, but to all of the education outcomes is making sure that there are wraparound, those type of wraparound services for kids. And it's been great for the graduation rates uh, as well as college admissions you know, in the places where they are. Get a little bit more granular on that. Where have you done the communities and schools work across the country? And when you talk about wraparound services, what is that? So wraparound services are the types of services that support kids outside of the academic classroom. So it is more like after-school supports, counseling support, college readiness supports, the type of social-emotional sports that will enable children to be successful in life. Does that go beyond just education? Does it go to food insecurity? Does it go to transportation issues? All of it. And it really depends on the school district, you know, or any health kind of system that's involved, where they're going to invest. But it's really all the things that you would think would be there for a child in school to ensure that they can live healthy lives. And so, like you said, 
it's going to be making sure you've got a stable family and stable housing to transportation to dental care is a big thing that we see for kids as well as other types of obviously health care and food being a big part of that as well as the kind of social supports that that kids need in terms of the communities and schools work that we've done most of it frankly has been national, has been helping their national organization think strategically about where they need to be in what markets and how to set up the right kind of like capacity supports and relationships with their market, with their different markets to be effective over the long term. Next phase of the conversation, Yeah, let's decode what works, shall we? Sure. Let's talk about the framework that you've developed. We have 10 components of social transformation that you think are absolutely crucial to doing this work. Not to be too bold, but I've already gone ahead and categorized them for you. Cool. I love it. We got two Bs to kick things off. All right. We got B, bold and believable, and we've got B, methodical and adaptive. Yeah. At first glance, these are actually almost like opposing forces. Yeah. How do you balance being bold and believable while at the same time you're methodical and adaptive? Yeah, wonderful question. So what we have found is that you need the bold to inspire that and that why you need to be bold to inspire people is that's what's going to bring people urgency into the table and build your stakeholder base. And so you've got to think about the objective of being bold in your communications and in your stakeholder engagement piece. Mm-hmm. The believable part, which gets to the methodical, what's the other thing you said there? Methodical and adaptive. And adaptive. Yeah, the believable part is where the rubber hits the road. So people will show up because they're inspired, but if there isn't something that's there for them to actually do to take a practical step, you'll lose it fast and there will be no coalition. And so, you know, the work that that we see that's really important is showing people an immediate path Look, what are the steps they can take? What are the actions they can take? We see people doing things like, let's take a pledge. Well, that's that's not enough necessarily to alone take a pledge. What are the different ways that I could actually be engaged in this work? And so what's important is that you're bold, but you actually have a specific plan of here are the five, seven different steps that we're going to take as a coalition, we're going to address this one particular policy. We're going to bring in residents in, an, in, an, in a new way to actually engage in schools and help us design what a solution would be for children in schools. Things like that where you have sort of immediate actions that you're going to take. And then the methodical and adaptive part is actually saying this is what we want to test. We want to test if it's working. So let's say for the first time we're going to build out a new strategy with people in schools for since we're on that topic, you know, for for kids. And maybe they're the kids that are having some challenges around getting to school for transportation reasons. And so we're going to come in and we're going to listen specifically to what are those transportation ills and we're going to understand and think about what the solutions could be. And then we're going to test if that works. And I think that part of being methodical and adaptive is recognizing that we're not going to take a year to do that. We're going to hear the five questions that we're going to ask every time a kid comes into school and is late, and we're going to figure out what is still preventing them, and then we're going to work again. And I think that's actually part of being bold and courageous, is actually trying to get that kind of repeated kind of feedback loop. And that's the only way to be adaptive. So you're going to change again as you get that information. All right, so I'm going to bridge off of those Bs to my next grouping, which is create shared ownership. Mm -hmm. 
and open your circle. So just now in this in this previous discussion, we talked about there has to be a task almost already identified. Yeah. And yet in this next two, we've got create shared ownership and open your circle. This is really about making the conversation bigger to include people whom you are hoping to help or to, to make sure that the people most affected by the issue you're trying to address are at the table or in the space because we don't need to bring them to our table. They need to, we need to go where they are, right? So there's a balance there too. Like who decides what the task is you're going to do? Yeah. And how does that relate to opening your circle and creating shared ownership? So the fact you put these together makes a lot of sense. We put them together all the time. And the way we think about the two of them is that first, that shared ownership is supposed to be speaking to organizational leaders and that you need to be first and foremost sharing power with other institutions and actually thinking about your own and being thoughtful. Um, so we see a lot of coalitions that decide, regardless of the amount of money each funder brings to the table, we're all going to have the same vote, you know, and our vote has the same power. That's just one kind of example there. So creating shared ownership is that we alone can't solve this problem and that we're going to share power, essentially, among institutions. When we say open our circle, we talk about taking a step back and recognizing for a minute who isn't at this table, who that needs to be here. And typically what we find is that tends to be either smaller organizations, organizations that are led by minorities and people of color, or it can be actual you know, residents and community leaders who may not have a very formal role typically in the kind of the nonprofit space, or it's the people affected by the problem. And that we want people to sort of open their minds to bringing people to the table. How will that change the conversation? And also, how will that change the solutions? And how can we get better outcomes? Our friend Haley Coles from Sonoran Prevention Works, she works uh, in the opioid space. Mm. She said something really strong the other day on this podcast. She said, I have never been in the room where there's an opioids policy discussion going on, where somebody who is a current user is participating in the conversation. She said, recovered people do not count because what happened two years ago is different than what's happening today. Mm. How do you respond to that? What has been your experience with that? Is it really possible to get the most affected people at the table? And why is it important to do it? You can't understand people unless you ask them what they've experienced. I don't think other people can understand folks without listening to their stories and actually being able to hear what other people have experienced. And I think that we make a lot of assumptions. And the opioid example is a great example of making a lot of assumptions that people do things because they can't, like, They've made bad decisions, and it's a bad personal decision, and there's a lot of judgment around that. And so I think that it is common that those folks are not at the table because we believe sometimes that we know better and that there's a lot of opportunity to bring people in and to understand and have some empathy for what people have gone through, right? That's really And it. it actually ends up solving you end up getting better solutions. I mean, and that's what people have seen. Like when we've had kids come and actually suggest for eat, like what they need for housing or what they need um, in, you know, in terms of getting access to food, 
you learn a lot more. You learn things that you didn't think you would um, know. I had the opportunity once to be in Chicago with a bunch of kids who were leaders. They were chosen as leaders in their high schools because they were very, very talented kids. They were giving us they were giving us a tour of their community, and this was probably one of the most impoverished parts of Chicago. None of their family members had graduated from high school. They were the first ones to do this, you know, to do this well. And so, you know, I, I asked them. I said, "What would it take to get more kids like you into a program like you know into a program like this and more kids focused?" And, and they said, "You know what? Actually, the key for us is that." Each one of us here had one parent that graduated high school, and that was like all the difference. And so put all your time into like helping our parents get their GED. That's what they had to offer. I would have never had that idea. You got to, you got never to a really great idea. solution, right? Right, you got, you got to, to a, a really, cause. really good mm-hmm. solution and a good cause. So, you know, I think that more and more we do see people, I will say, bringing in people that are affected by the problem. I think this is like, and, and realizing that there is value in that. And I think the best thing that institutions and organizations can do is to help reframe some of these issues so that people will listen to others. Like if, you, if we change that norm where there's more empathy and there's more opportunity to actually listen to other people, I think it will be done more. Unintentionally or not, it's judgment that gets in the way. It's judgment of others and not tapping into the lived experience of the folks that you're hoping to help and gaining that understanding and getting to sort of root issues and root causes. Without getting there, you won't get where you want to go. You can't be bold. Right. You, can't, you can't do the right things. And really placing a value, placing a value on that contribution and demonstrably so. Like don't invite somebody into your, into your room and ask a lot of questions and then don't value them for that. Don't you, because then you're just being extractive and exploitive like yes. everybody else. And people can see that. I mean, they know the difference between input, what they think is input that someone's going to not listen to, and you just want input versus you really want to listen and understand, and, and we'd like you to engage in building something with us that's different. Okay, I'm going to sandwich like four things yeah, together yeah, in this ahead. next one, because yeah. you and you used the word that triggered me, which is reframe. Okay. So the next four are communications as strategy. Yeah. Reframe the conversation. Yeah. Build public support and build deep empathy. To us, these mm. are the things that people always forget to put intention behind, because communications is just for kicks. It's not. It's not real. It's not the work. Yeah. How would you respond to that? I think communications is the whole work. <laughs> I think that communications is how we, and why I say that, it's one, it's how we relate to each other. It's how we understand each other. Communications, I think often people think about it as one, what are we saying out there to bring people in? And just what we were just talking about is, yeah, there's some of that needs that needs to be done. Um, so reframing the conversation is a lot about how you can take an issue and how people perceive it and change public opinion. That is really important. 
at the same time, a big part of communications is listening, right, and is empathy. And so it's a two-way street, and uh, that is a big part of it. And public policy and building public policy, I think, is critical because it's one of those things that can actually change for the masses. But you can't do that without having this back-and-forth dialogue to listen and understand what are the issues and how do we actually move them, and also helping to like reframe so that you get more public support. You really need all of that together. And empathy is at the core of that, not just understanding the issues and the, and the people that you're working with, but also, or work, you know, and help looking to help. But also, if you're thinking about moving public policy, it's you've got to understand your opponents. You've got to understand their perspectives on these issues and, and how, you can work, how you can work to move forward and actually on legislation. True or false, most organizations in the social sector do not put an emphasis on this. At best, they have a charismatic leader and a bunch of do-gooders. I think that's true. I think it's... So how I think, do we change that when we've got these four key components in of social transformation that people are not paying attention to? You know, well, let me say, I think there are a lot of organizations that are built just to focus on advocacy and public policy. And so it's, it would be unfair to say that, right? So I, I think it would be unfair to say that we don't have a lot of organizations out there that actually that's why they were what they were founded. But that's a reaction to most of the nonprofits not focusing on public policy and communication. And actually, what I think we need to do is to get those groups together. So we've got great organizations that have built unbelievable assets around public policy and communications. And I think like the Kids Count Network, for example, we're just going to stick with kids for a minute here. I mean, they were they were funded by Casey as a network to really drive that kind of that kind of infrastructure work at the state level. And so what we need is coalitions that actually engage that type of asset of that kind of that organization with the nonprofits that are delivering services and together thinking about how can we use communications as a strategy, not as a function, not as a tool, but as a strategy to drive change. And I think the where this happens actually is in coalitions, that you've got to bring in those types of assets, whether they sit in organizations or not. Now, part of the straw that stirs that entire drink is your ninth component, which is build culture intentionally. Yeah. So how do you get those previous ones we just talked about in that last group, how do you get that instantiated and, and to be part of the entire mix of the organization or the coalition? The culture part? How do you get that to be part mm-hmm. of the, the entire coalition? Well, you got to focus on how to build it intentionally. I think the thing, so you just talked about communications being something that's overlooked, overlooked typically with nonprofits. I agree. Gosh, if there's something that's even more overlooked, it's the intentionality in how we work together. Most people will spend time, of course, on building a strategic plan, on thinking about the metrics that they need, on building, you know, we need to have certain governance structures, we have to think about our fundraising and our finances, but do we take the time as adults to say, do we build trust, how do we work together in an effective way? Because we make the assumption that we do, but if we actually take a step back and we think about how we feel frankly, in the work, we realize that we're coming up against resistance all the time. And this is what I have people sort of do. Like, where are those points where we're stuck and we can't move? And why are we stuck? And when people talk about being stuck, it's usually because of the dynamics they have with other partners or with people within their own organizations that are we're unable to move on an issue because we haven't worked through a difference of perspective or some kind of competition or some kind of a challenge or sometimes it's distrust that we're working towards. Or we have our own, frankly, our own ambitions sometimes 
at the forefront rather than ambitions of the cause or others that that comes in you know as well so what we suggest that coalitions and our organizations do is actually spend some time building their culture intentionally and thinking about if they really want to build a change-making culture, what are some of the core components? And we do have some core components of what that looks like. Is it often the case, by the way, that, well, I've got a culture in my head, so everybody must have that culture, or my organization has this culture, so I would think everybody else thinks the same way as me? Is that part of it? Big part of it. I mean, we like to talk about the iceberg. So when you see an iceberg and you're coming at it, you see the tip. And the tip of the iceberg, right, is the values that are like written on everybody's wall. And we all know that we have excellence, that we care about inclusion, that we're transparent. But what does that mean? And what's under the iceberg or under the water is actually the big stuff that sinks the ship. <laughs> and the big stuff that's, that that it's the behaviors and it's the beliefs that are unspoken sometimes. And we don't always talk about what are the patterns of behavior. So actually, the one key thing that we have learned that will help organizations make sure their culture is explicit and bring this to life is intentionally naming the behaviors, the patterns of behaviors they want that lead to the particular results that they're looking for, and to make sure that people, secondly, their, their beliefs the beliefs they hold are actually aligned with those behaviors and talking very intentionally about that. And then you want to make sure that the policies or protocols, the ways you make decisions, those what we call our norms, are aligned with the behaviors and results you want. But you intentional culture cannot just be about, I have some values. It has to be about behaviors, beliefs, and the norms that support it. Would you recommend then that leadership of a coalition actually carve out time on an agenda to review and, for lack of a better term, assess patterns of behavior for the coalition and its participants? Yes. And that's a big part of the work that we do. I laugh with people. We're going to have to talk about how to make a decision. We're going to decide on how to make a decision. And people, this is something I don't want to do. Why should I decide on how to decide and in what context? But when you set up some of those frames for how are we going to decide Um, Who's going to decide? How are we going to actually choose the particular issues that we're going to we're going to work on? How are we going to structure that decision making? It changes the way the coalition works when you explicitly say, "Here are the different kind of behaviors." It's not just that we care about learning, but we care about seeking to understand. That is very different. Um, What does it mean to seek to understand, and how does that show up in every meeting? So we recommend that people take the time to frame that out. But then also there's accountability factor in how do you actually hold the coalition members to those sets of behaviors. And sometimes that's quarterly conversations. Sometimes that's literally as you're making decisions, you call out when things are working well and when they're not, for example, and have conversations about when you're living these behaviors and when you're not. Mm -hmm. And organizations and or coalitions that can do that are going to be much more successful. And that, Putting into living practice. Yes. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how you set norms. There you go. All right. So we, we, we've gotten all the way to the end of the list, number 10. I left it all to itself because yeah. it seems like a capper, which is just simply experiment, learn, and evolve. Yeah. And yet you called it out as its own thing. So talk talk why it's important to keep that at the, at the list as sort of the capper and, and what it means operationally, what it means on a daily basis. 
So what we found is that the world is changing too fast to put plans in place and then to reassess a year from now, and even to do five-year plans. And so what we have found is that it is better to set up small, I mean, what we call them experiments, but small things you're going to try and then have some intentional questions and ways of getting feedback and to evolve over time. And that be central to the coalition's kind of conversations about what's working and what's not working and let them build on each other. And that can be everything from we're going to try to engage a new stakeholder group, whether that's the community or the business coalition and how that's going, what's the feedback that we're getting, to a to a particular program to our legislative wins, right? It's it's across everything. And usually people will have multiple small experiments against different topics that you see on the transformation life cycle going on any one time. But you want to be able to reassess every every few months on how something is going. I mean, unless it's legislation that takes longer than that, that would be a, di- that would be a different story. But with most things, you want to set those time bounds and then readjust and work in a much, build the muscle to work in a much more agile way because things are changing so quickly. Um, you won't be able to solve the problem otherwise. So I'm just feeling like one conversation is not going to be enough. Will you come back and visit us at the Spark again? Absolutely. Appreciate thank that. you. I yeah. very much appreciate the invitation. It's very kind of you. I feel like we just got started, but thank mm-hmm. you, Sarah, very, very much. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And just like that, that's part two of our conversation. This ending wasn't quite a cliffhanger either, but it does beg for more discussion with Sarah, something we're looking forward to here at The Vitalist Spark in the near future. For now, though, we'd like to give a great big thank you to Sarah and an even bigger one to the many successful coalitions that have worked with community wealth partners. We are all benefiting from the lessons embedded in your experience, and for that, we could not be more grateful. We've got more compelling conversations headed your way soon. To make sure you get every episode when it is released, reach into your podcast app right now and subscribe to The Vitalist Spark. As always, remember this, with great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon. Mm-hmm.